Welcome to the latest edition of Star Cells in God. This is the podcast where we explore the latest discoveries taking place at the frontier of science and discuss what these discoveries mean for the case for God's existence and the reliability of Scripture. Uh, my name is Fuzz Rana. I am a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I'm joined in studio today uh, by Dr. Hugh Ross, who is an astronomer and also a Christian apologist. We both work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which sponsors this podcast. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website, www.reasons.org. Also, we would ask for you to follow us on social media, RTB underscore official, and then also go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One. This is the place where we host the Star Cells and God episodes. So if you go to our YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe and you hit the notification button so you'll be alerted to the next time a new episode of Star Cells and God drops. Also at our YouTube channel is a whole host of videos exploring a wide range of topics that fall under the science faith umbrella. Well, without any further ado, uh, let's get started with uh, today's show. Uh, Hugh, you've got, uh, I think, some some interesting things to talk about uh, regarding well, uh, these kind of micro drones or something like that. Yeah, I'm kind of moving into your territory, Fuzz. I know you've written a lot of articles on bioinspiration. Uh, and I, this one caught my attention because it actually has significant applications in the physical sciences. Mm. You know, in astronomy, we have all these things that we call holy grails yeah. that we're trying to pursue uh, to get breakthroughs in astrophysics and cosmology. Yeah. Well, one of the holy grails in biology and bioengineering is to try to make really tiny flying drones. Mm. Uh, because, for example, uh, you have an earthquake or a hurricane. You've got people and animals trapped under piles of rubble. And uh, the trick is, how do you find them? And so if you have these really tiny flying drones, they can be zipping in and around uh, piles of rubble, discover who's under that rubble, what condition they're in, and that would really help the rescuers. Right. Uh, from an astronomical perspective, uh, you know, you could make a really tiny spacecraft and fill it with these really tiny flying drones. And so when it gets to Mars or a distant planet, uh, you could actually have it release these tiny flying drones and uh, gather the data that you need. And you could release hundreds of them as opposed to just one. And this is really crucial if you're wanting to do interstellar exploration. Mm. I mean, astronomers actually have uh, a proposal uh, to explore the planet that's orbiting the nearest star and to directly explore it uh, with a spacecraft. But they recognize that the biggest spacecraft you can possibly send across interstellar space is about 10 centimeters across. And even then, you better send at least a thousand of them because a minimum, half of them will be utterly destroyed mm -hmm. before they get there. And that's just based on the fact that you have to travel fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go one-tenth uh, one of velocity of light, it takes you 42 years to get to that mm -hmm. uh, planet. And so they're thinking, well, we gotta go fast, but if we go fast, we're gonna bump into particles at high speed and it's gonna damage the craft. But the goal is if we say send a thousand tiny spaceships, half of them will be utterly destroyed. Uh, a good two thirds of the remainder will be significantly damaged. 
But if you could house these tiny little flying drones inside this little small package, when it gets to that planet, they could be released. Mm -hmm. A swarm of them can be released and actually bring back uh, useful information. And uh, then my wife suggested, well, I can think of an application these scientists haven't even thought about. She hates mosquitoes. <laughs> so, so wouldn't it be wonderful if we could be hiking in the wilds of British Columbia and release these tiny drones uh, and go out and detect these biting insects and, and, and wipe them all out and we don't get bit? Uh, or they could even be selective. I mean, yeah. for example, you could be in parts of Africa and you could have these drones which would simply target the malaria-carrying right. uh, you know, mosquitoes and just selectively uh, go after them and leave the rest of them alone. So those are the kinds of applications. Right. But the real challenge is how do you make a flying drone uh, that has the weight of a fly, a bee, and the real goal is can we make them as small as a fruit fly or even smaller as a gnat? And so uh, an article I've written is basically a review describing okay, what has happened Mm -hmm. And what are the latest breakthroughs? Well, if you go back a few years ago, they said, well, the real challenge is how do you build a, a gyroscope? Because if this thing, I mean, if you, if you buy one of these drones uh, at the, the store, right. they've got a sophisticated gyroscope in it to stabilize the flight. Well, what they said, let's go study uh, the flying insects that are out there. Mm -hmm. So they did a detailed study on bees and discovered that bees have a bio-gyroscope built mm. in. So there's a gyroscope. I never thought about bees having a gyroscope, and it's really tiny. And so uh, bioengineers basically studied mm -hmm. uh, meticulously the designs in the bee, and they were able to build a gyroscope that weighs only 15 milligrams. Wow. And on that basis, uh, they built... Uh, a flying robot that weighs 190 milligrams. To put that in perspective, your typical worker honeybee comes in at 160 milligrams. This was 190 milligrams and uh, was able to function like a bee. It could hover, uh, it could move back and forth, it could detect the winds, mm. uh, had a battery built into it. And then they said, can we make it smaller than 190 milligrams? Well, that requires coming up with a tiny battery that has significant, I mean, if it only flies 10 feet, that's not gonna right. do much for you. Uh, so you need you know, an energy intensive battery that is lightweight. I would imagine too, if you're trying to make some kind of measurement, you need to have a, a micro camera and, and electronic you know, components as well. So that would probably restrict the, the size, too, well, doesn't it? what amazed me, Fuzz, is that's kind of the least of the problems of these Okay, really? Is that they can make microprocessors that are incredibly tiny mm. and cameras. So the, the weight of the camera, the weight of the computer microprocessor, that's not the limitation. Uh. The limitation is we've got to have a battery on board. Uh. Uh, and, you know, we need to have a gyroscope. Mm. And so they're thinking, how can we get around these barriers? Well, one team said, well, let's skip the battery. And uh, so they were able to make a flying robot that weighed only 80 milligrams. But here's the problem. It was tethered. Mm. And they were using a ground-based laser beam to pump energy into the robot. But they said, hey, we can make you know, yeah. a 200-foot-long tether, and it can do useful stuff. Yeah. So and we can make the tether longer and just 
But the problem is you've got to have that laser beam focused on the robot uh, at least most of the time to provide it with mm-hmm. the energy that it needs. And so bioengineers are saying, you know, uh, fruit flies aren't tethered. Let's see if we can make a flying robot approximately the weight of a fruit fly that's not tethered. Mm. And that required a a whole year of work. Can we make a battery Mm. uh, small enough and yet powerful enough that uh, we could make, uh, you know, a a flying robot? Uh, And then they said, what if we could make it as small as a gnat? Mm. And, you know, a gnat is about five times less the weight of uh, Mm. a fruit fly. You're looking at something that's like between two and ten milligrams. So they said, okay, the real goal is, the real holy grail, can we make a useful flying robot that weighs only 10 milligrams? And they said, okay, we got the battery issue, but we think we're making headway on that. So they now have these really tiny batteries that actually do deliver Mm. a significant power. But they said the gyroscope is a problem. Yeah, yeah. But as they looked inside fruit flies and gnats, they realized, unlike bees, there is no biological gyroscope. They said, we got to figure out mm. how they can stabilize their flight and hover without a gyroscope. And so they very carefully studied fruit flies and discovered that what they have uh, are these antennae that are very lightweight, and they got these extremely tiny feathers, and the feathers act like accelerometers. Okay. And so they said, okay, skip the gyroscope, can we make a really tiny accelerometer that can actually measure wind velocities, uh-huh. the dust, rain and snow, you know, stuff that would impede or adjust the flight? Mm-hmm. And so they were able to actually come up with accelerometers uh, that were coming in like at a milligram. And so they said, okay, we don't need the gyroscope. We just copy the designs we see in gnats and fruit flies mm-hmm. and uh, make these very miniaturized accelerometers. And the other big problem is, okay, if you look at these flies, uh, they have very sophisticated muscles uh, to control the flapping Mm. of the wings. And, uh, you know, some of these insects have four wings instead of two, which actually helps them to hover. Uh, But now you need to find some way of uh, duplicating the muscles. So they have very carefully studied Mm. the flight muscles of these gnats and fruit flies, and they were able to come up with highly miniaturized, uh, high-powered piezoelectric devices, Mm. which basically simulated the muscles. And then this just got published literally uh, a couple of weeks ago where they said, we've done it. We've built a 10-milligram flying robot that can hover, that can sense what's in the atmosphere, dust, snow, rain, uh, wind, and make the appropriate adjustments and actually can do useful stuff. It's got a fully functional microprocessor Mm. on board. Uh, So it's got the battery. And so they said, we're on the way to these kinds of applications. And maybe we can actually use these things to, you know, hunt out uh, malaria-carrying mosquitoes, uh, take care of them. And uh, actually, that that would be one application that would have immediate benefit. Uh, But then uh, I'm thinking of, you know, planetary exploration. Yeah. It could reduce the cost of planetary exploration by about 100 times. Wow. So now we can do relatively cheap exploration of our solar system and possibly even mm-hmm. uh, other uh, planetary systems. 
that are relatively nearby. So that's kind of the bottom line, but I think the apologetic application, you know, we were created in the image of God. God creates, but he gave us humans a capacity to invent, design, mm. and create. Uh, but nobody does it as good as, as God has done it. Right. And so it just makes sense. Let's look at the designs God has done, the machines that he has done, right. and see if we can copy them uh, to achieve uh, the objectives that we need and recognize this is part of our mandate. Yeah. God told us in Genesis chapter 1, use the resources of planet Earth uh, for your benefit, to manage the planet for your benefit and the benefit of all life. And so looking at the, these mm. gnats and fruit flies and bees and saying, okay, can we do it as well as they do and actually use these uh, for advantage? Yeah. So a lot easier than trying to tame a fruit fly. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting. Some of the points that you're bringing up are going to be points that I'm going to be bringing up. <laughs> when I, so we didn't talk about our discoveries, but they, they're going to fit together really well. But, you know, one of the things that I think is is interesting is that when you, you think about the work in biomimetics and bioinspiration, it really, number one, is highlighting just how elegant and remarkable biological designs are. You know, and and I think, you know, a discipline like bioinspiration, biomimetics is really something that fits naturally within a creation model context. If God is the creator, we would expect these elegant designs and it's 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 not like people are going after a design here or a design there. This is actually a discipline where people are systematically studying biological designs, some instances directly copying them, other instances understanding principles that then lead to new technologies. Well, Fuzz, as I was reading these papers, uh, what I was seeing these authors who I don't think are believers basically saying, if we want to miniaturize when we look at biological systems, they're at the theoretical miniaturization limit. Mm -hmm. So it simply makes sense yeah. to study the tiny creatures that God has made right. to try to do the best we can to approach those theoretical limits. Because in these biological systems, the machines are at the theoretical limits that the laws of physics will permit. Yeah, yes. And, and again, that, that to me is absolutely remarkable. But, you know, it also, I think, is... A, I, I would argue that biomimetics and bioinspiration fits very uncomfortably within an evolutionary perspective uh, because, you know, uh, we talked about this uh, a couple of uh, days ago. The way most evolutionary biologists conceive of the evolutionary process is it doesn't produce optimal systems that are well-designed, but rather most evolutionary biologists would argue that evolution produces these inherently flawed, imperfect systems that are just cobbled together, constrained by, you know, the, the historical contingent nature of the evolutionary process. Well, if that truly is the right way to, to understand biological designs, then who in their right mind would turn to biology? Yeah, why would you copy a crippled design? Right, <laughs> yes. And so... So to me, the, the idea of, of bioinspiration is, I think, is fundamentally incompatible with an evolutionary view. Yeah, especially when you see optimization all across the biological right. realm. Right, I mean, For me, just seeing how close we see the designs in fruit flies and gnats, 
to the utter theoretical physical limits tells us. Right. You know, somebody with a very intelligent mind was working on this yeah. and, and got it to work, and we can't do any better. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I think this is a point that you alluded to, but I think is worth developing a little bit because I'm going to give emphasis to this so it helps to bridge our two discoveries. But this idea, too, of God's providence, right, that, that God, when he's created the, the world that we live in, has put in place these processes, these biological systems, so that they will provide for the creation so that the creation will be sustained and provisioned. And of course, for human beings, that, that, that provisioning is even at a higher level than most other organisms, where it's not just simply surviving and maybe thriving, but for human beings, it's the idea of flourishing and the idea of, of generating technological advance that it continually improves the, the quality of our lives, right? And so Again, I see this the, the idea that these biological designs are something that we can tap into to create technology is really, I think, part of God's provisioning and is the motivation for Christians to really uh, pursue science and, and technology. Well, we humans take a lot of pride in what we've done with computers. You're asking me about the microprocessor on board these things. Well, think of the microprocessor that's inside a gnat's head. Yeah. I mean, we're not able to approach that. Yeah. So, but, you know, thanks to what we see in life systems, we are yeah. making really tiny, effective microprocessors. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, a really neat <laughs> neat discovery. I enjoyed it. You know, I I, I love the idea of bioinspiration. It's, it's, it's one of the most interesting areas, I think, in, in engineering. And in my experience, people love to talk about biomimetics and, and, and bioinspiration, you, you, it's not uncommon to, to see, um, you know, articles at the, at the popular level, science, you know, popularizers talking about these kind of advances. Well, you made me think of another one. We could actually use these tiny flying robots to assist fishermen, send them out over streams and lakes, <laughs> get the trout snapping at them. There we go. <laughs> Might be an expensive fly, but <laughs> all right. Okay. Anything You're, else, you? No, that's fine. Okay. I, I, I'm really curious what you got up. Okay. Well, uh, and and I'll, I'm going to tell a little story to kind of uh, okay. set the stage for for what I want to talk about. When I was in college, and I went to uh, West Virginia State College, it's a very small school outside of Charleston, West Virginia, in a little community called Institute. Uh, uh, I, in the afternoons after I would finish my science classes, I would oftentimes go to the university weight room just to get a little exercise and blow off some steam, you know, before I had dinner and started studying. Uh, and uh, because I would do that on a regular basis, I got to know some of the football players who during the off season would go to the weight room to stay in shape. And, uh, and one of the, the football players I got to know was a the star running back for the, the Yellow Jackets, a guy named uh, Hollis Payton. And uh, he was actually a, a, one of these big men on campus. It was a small school. And he, his, his notoriety was twofold. One, he was actually drafted uh, to play for the Pittsburgh Maulers of the USFL. This would have been in the early 1980s. Unfortunately, 
the, the USFL lasted for two seasons and then it went bankrupt. So before poor Hollis could ever suit up, the Pittsburgh Maulers, along with the entire USFL, went under. So, you know, what a, what a sad story in some respects. But his other claim to fame was that he was the cousin of a football player named Walter Payton. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. The, the legendary running back, right. you know, for the Chicago Bears. And we could spend, you know, 15 minutes going through all of his accomplishments on the football field. But his nickname was was Sweetness because he was just this just very agile, you know, smooth running uh, running back. Uh, and, you know, you know, unfortunately, Walter Payton died at a relatively young age. He was in his early 40s when he died. And he died because of a of a rare liver disease, and he died waiting for a liver transplant. And so today when people think about Walter Payton, they think about the fact that he died at a young age and that he is, is somewhat of a poster, a poster figure for the need for more uh, organ donations. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, there's, you know, the last statistics I saw was well over 100,000 people at any one point in time waiting on a waiting list for for organ donations. And many of those people will end up dying before they ever get an organ. So, you know, it's a real urgent need, you know, in the medical community to have, you know, a source of of organs and um, or to come up with some other alternatives. Now, um, most of the organ donations have to be from cadavers, from someone that that died and then was an organ donor. But there's a couple of, of organs that can be donated by living donors, like uh, kidneys. Like a kidney, yeah, yeah you because got you got two. And another uh, organ that, again, you can have a living donor for is the liver. Because you only need part of your liver. Right. Well, the, the liver and the liver actually regenerates. Mm-hmm. And so you, you can actually have a living donor if that person is a match. And what they do is, is shown in this slide is that they remove the, the diseased liver from the recipient. And then they take a portion, usually the right lobe, they take a portion of that right. liver and transplant it into into the recipient. Now, the liver is an unusual organ in that it can regenerate. And so the, the, the piece of the organ that's removed from the donor will eventually regenerate in a, in a matter of months. And, you know, the organ that's or the piece of the liver that was transplanted into the recipient will also regenerate as well and increase in size. I don't know if it winds up producing the full liver, but it's enough that that the, that person is able to survive. So, the liver has this unusual capacity among organs being able to regenerate. And when you understand what, what one of the roles of the liver is, it makes sense because the liver is primary. One of its roles is to remove toxins from the body. Right. And so it ta- the liver takes up all kinds of, uh, of toxins. In fact, um, I just had a, a few days ago a nuclear chemical stress test. And, and what they do in that stress test is they inject you with technetium, which has a half-life of about six hours, uh, and then they, they will uh, met, you know, image your heart under normal conditions, and then they'll introduce a chemical agent that will cause your heart to undergo stress, and they look at this to make sure the blood flow is appropriate. But what they have to do, this, this is really interesting, after they administer the technetium, is that you have to eat a meal. So I'm in, I'm in the, the waiting room 
after getting the technetium injected, and I had to eat a meal because what happens is the food, the 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 fats from what you consume go to the liver and force the technetium out of the liver. Otherwise, the liver would take up the technetium, right? Right, right. So it's a it's a really interesting test. Uh, so the liver will will do that now, uh, but because it's taking up toxins, the cells in the liver will become damaged. Uh, and so the liver needs to be able to regenerate to replace those cells that are lost from exposure to toxins. Uh, unfortunately, if, the, if the, the damage to the liver is chronic or the exposure to the toxins is chronic, like people that are, uh, consume excess alcohol and wind right. up with the cirrhosis of the liver, that's because of a chronic damage to the liver. Or if there's a viral infection or fatty liver disease, there the damage is so extensive that even though the liver can regenerate, it can't keep pace. Can't keep pace, right. And so the, the only option you have under those circumstances is is to trans is the transplant the liver. But one of the, the visions that many biomedical researchers have is that if we can figure out a way to accelerate the regenerative process in livers, even for livers that are diseased, we might be able to replace the damaged liver tissue and avoid the need for a transplant. So instead of three or four months, get it down to a couple of weeks? Is that the goal? Yeah, yeah. If you can, again, just just stimulate acceleration. And so one way that this might be possible is through the use of the bacteria that causes leprosy, Mycobacterium leprae. And, and what's the connection with the liver there? I'll, I'll explain that. Yeah, okay. yeah. So this is a paper that was just published by a team from the UK, uh, in which they look at the use of, again, this leprosy-causing bacteria uh, to, uh, to stimulate regeneration of the liver. And the, the, the leprosy bacteria is, this is a, a, a depiction of the bacterium. It's, a, it's an obligatory uh, internal parasite. It's a bacterium that uh, has to reside within the cell. It can't exist outside the cell. And, and the, the genome of this bacterium is reduced because it relies on host cell biochemistry. And in fact, uh, even though we have this perception that leprosy is highly contagious, in fact, it isn't. You have to be really exposed extensively and for a prolonged period of time with somebody with leprosy before you'll actually be infected with it, right. which is, is kind of the good news. And, and I think most people... Are, are familiar with some of the symptoms of leprosy, the, the boils and the lesions on the skin. But of course, another symptom is that people with leprosy begin to lose feeling, right. particularly in their extremities, right? And this is, of course, dangerous because they don't feel pain, they're prone to injury, or they might have cuts that, are, they are, they are, uh, that go undetected and wind up getting in secondary infections. And it turns out that the bacterium that... Um, that causes leprosy infects what are called the, the Schwann cells, which are part of the peripheral nervous system. So here's a, a diagram showing the difference between the central and the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system is the brain and the spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system are all the nerves that extend from the spinal cord that innervate the body. Mm -hmm. And you, when we think about the, the, the cells of the nervous system, we immediately think of neurons, which are the cells that conduct the the the, the, you know, the uh, electrical yeah. pulses, right. the electrical transmission. 
uh, that, that's part of the communication taking place in the nervous system. But there's a whole host of other cells that are called neural glial cells that serve a support role. Some of them are, have an architectural role in terms of establishing the structure of the, the nerves. Some of them have an intimate association with neurons, providing maintenance and support uh, for the, the activity of the neurons. Others are functioning as part of, an immune, of the immune system protecting the nervous tissue. Uh, but the particular cell that the leprosy-causing bacteria infects is a, a neuroglial cell, again called a Schwann cell. And this is uh, what a, the, where, where the, the Schwann cells uh, are found. They, are, they decorate or they're in an intimate association with the axons, Mm-hmm. And they produce this fatty material called a myelin sheath. And the myelin sheath, because it's a fat, is an insulator. And so this is actually critical for transmission of electrical signals along the axon because what happens is when the, the electrical signal, the de- depolarization of the membrane hits the myelin sheath, it hops over it to the, to the next node where there is an exposed surface on the axon. So instead of that transmission going along the axon, it hops from node to node to node. So very elegant design. But when the leprosy-causing bacteria infects Schwann cells, it damages them, which then causes the peripheral nerves to, 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 be, uh, to lose function right. because of the, the importance that the Schwann cells play in nerve transmission. So there's been a, a lot of effort trying to understand how do these leprosy-causing bacteria, again, impact Schwann cells? And another question is, how do they actually spread? How does the infection spread in the human host? Uh, and because it, this is an intracellular parasite, it can't get into the, it can't escape the cell and then migrate through the tissue and reinfect other cells. It's got to remain inside the cell. And so this same research team in 2013 made a very important discovery. They discovered that what happens is these leprosy-causing bacteria get inside the Schwann cell and they reprogram it from being in a differentiated state to being like a stem cell. So now it loses its characteristics as a Schwann cell. It's a stem cell. And then it can migrate into the muscle tissue. Mm -hmm. And then there it will redifferentiate into a muscle cell. So this is how... The, the, the bacteria spreads. It's by reprogramming the Schwann cell into a stem cell-like state. So then the researchers began to wonder, could this be a useful mechanism for stimulating regeneration in, in the liver? And the reason they got that idea is because another natural host, and we were talking about this before the, we started the, the cameras rolling, another natural host for uh, oh, leprosy. For leprosy is the is the armadillo, and this is the nine-banded armadillo. Uh, and it turns out that the leprosy-causing bacterium actually infects the liver of the armadillo, not the nerve system, nervous system. And so they they wondered, well, if these bacteria cause a reprogramming of the Schwann cells to a stem cell-like state, would they do the same thing in the liver cells of the armadillo? And so they infected a number of these armadillos with the leprosy-causing bacteria, and then between 10 months after the infection and 30 months after the infection, they sacrificed the armadillos and isolated the liver and began to study it. And what they noticed 
is that the liver in all of these armadillos was enlarged. Now, if a liver is enlarged, that usually is an indication of a disease state. But when they studied the liver, it was healthy, that, that it, it was a healthy functioning liver, that they analyzed the microanatomy of the liver and it looked exactly like you would expect it to look. And they noticed that some of the liver cells seemed to be reproducing at an accelerated rate compared to what they normally would do. And when they looked at the gene expression profile of those cells, it was like a stem cell or a progenitor cell. Uh, and so the idea here is that could we potentially take this understanding? They have no idea how the bacterium is doing this. But now if they can figure out what the bacterium is doing, this could either be, this could be an important insight that could be used to treat uh, you know, people with liver disease who need, otherwise would need a, 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 a transplant. Could they infect them with the leprosy-causing bacterium or could they take the insight and use that insight as a way to stimulate uh, the liver cells to regenerate? Now, the exciting thing is that that insight could also potentially be used to regenerate organs that don't normally regenerate. So this is a really very exciting advance. Uh, now, what's interesting to me about this is that when we think about something like the leprosy-causing bacterium, we think of this as being an evil, right, in nature, right? Uh, but what's remarkable to me is that the very properties that make this bacterium so insidious are the very properties that we can exploit to actually treat people with liver disease and maybe solve the problem of not having enough organs for people that are waiting for organ transplants. So it's, it's ironic that that which makes this bacterium so, so problematic actually can be used for enormous amount of good. Now, as I understand, I'm guessing that the paper that you're citing ended by saying, well, one way we could go is basically infect people with this uh, bacterium uh, get the liver uh, growing at a faster rate, then somehow pull the bacteria out so we don't have... Well, I mean, leprosy can be cured. Yeah. It's just a, a, a regime of, you know, of, uh, you know multi... It's a, like a multi-antibiotic regime. But I'm also guessing they're saying that's one way to go. Another way to go is figure out how the leprosy bacteria is doing this, and then without using bacteria, we can just simply yep. copy... Yep. that process, and potentially even copy it, not just for getting accelerated liver growth, but we may be able to apply it to, say, the lungs. Yes. Because a lot of people have you know, lung diseases where they have yep. only a tiny part of their lungs and they need a lung transplant. So this might actually save people from yep. having to get lung transplants. Yes, exactly. So exactly. that's kind of where it ended. So yep. saying, hey, you know, there's a lot more research that needs to be done. Right. But this is something that we really ought to fund. Right. Uh, get researchers involved because yep. uh, the health potential is enormous. Yes, yeah. So it's a very exciting discovery. But again, it, this is the type of thing that I see as a Christian as part of God's providence. You know, we, we think of, again, something like leprosy as being this evil. And, and yeah, why, why would God do this? Why would God do this? But even in those things in nature that we we see as deadly or as dangerous are things that, if we understand them, can actually be used for, for good, for, for human flourishing. You know, and this goes back to what you were mentioning before, is that we're made in God's image, 
and that we have responsibility to care for the planet. Right. But we also have dominion over the planet, and we are to use that dominion to not only uh, improve and, and maintain the quality of the earth and the organisms on the earth, but to benefit human beings so that we can flourish. And part of that is to be able to treat diseases. And, you know, when it comes to, again, this question, well, why would God create this bacterium that causes so much human pain and suffering? Well, you know, we, we actually presented a a creation model for the origin of infectious diseases in, in Who Was Adam, the second edition of Who Was Adam. And, you know, the, the, the model is, is essentially this idea that God didn't create bacteria or other infectious agents to attack humans, but rather those infectious agents eventually began to impact humanity because we didn't interact with the creation or we don't interact with the creation in the right way. Because not only are we made in God's image, but we also uh, fell. Like we, because of our rebellion in the Garden of Eden, human beings were in a fallen state. Yeah, and a lot of what afflicts us is our fault. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, when the fall happened, our relationship with God was damaged, our relationship with other people, but even our relationship with the creation. So when, you know, God says, curse is the earth because of you, what I, how I read that is because our relationship now it, with the creation is, is damaged because of our rebellion, because of our sin, the creation is going to suffer at our hands instead of being blessed at our hands. Uh, and, and so as a result of that, we don't interact with the creation in, the, in a way that reflects wisdom. And so we, we just saw, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which, you know, by some accounts is due to you know, a, a virus hopping from one host to the other because of our mismanagement of the creation. Right. And so knowing that armadillos, for example, are a natural host, a natural animal host to the leprosy-causing bacteria, could there be other animals likewise that are natural hosts? And could it be that leprosy was introduced into humanity because of our, our mismanagement of the creation? Right. And in fact, I... I I went into the literature and discovered that people uh, who are looking at the origin in the in the natural history of leprosy have discovered that its origin coincides with the origin of humanity, and it and it could very well be an example of of host hopping. So, in other words, we could see something like the leprosy bacteria is not as something that God created to infect humans, but something that is part of the, of ecosystems where these these bacteria are playing a, a critical role in maintaining the health of the ecosystems. They wind up now infecting humans. But as we've learned more and more about how these bacteria impact humans during the infection cycle and how they impact other organisms, we can take that understanding and turn that which is bad into that which is good and beneficial to humanity. And I see this, again, as, as part of God's providence, that part of God's care for humanity. Okay, Fuzz, I know a question a lot of our viewers are going to want to know is this. You know, if we decide to seriously fund this research effort, how soon are we going to be able to see uh, where we can actually replace transplants of lungs and livers uh, with this new technique? Is that a decade away? It's, 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 hard, to, it's hard to guess. Yes. You know, uh, because, I mean, to try to figure out how that reprogramming is working is going to be a very challenging, you know, problem in molecular biology and, and, 
in you know molecular genetics. Uh, but um, once once we figure that out, I mean that that insight should be something that could be easily exploited for you know developing you know regimes that could stimulate the liver to regenerate. And this would be a whole lot cheaper than trying to do uh, transplants like we're doing today. Yes. So maybe that would be a motivation to you know, catapult this research. Oh yeah, I think there's a huge motivation to to, to advance this this work. This is a, a very exciting discovery by by all means. And and um, again, it's hard to know how long it's going to take to get into the clinical arena, but um, uh, it could be. I think there's a lot of motivation to accelerate this work, so. That's good to hear. Yeah. Okay, well, it looks like we, we've come to the end here. Um, I'm just gonna go ahead and bring everything to a close by just saying, first of all, thank you for watching uh, this episode of Star Cells, and God. Remember, go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, and subscribe, set the notification button, so, or hit the notification button so that you are reminded when uh, the next episode of Star Cells and God will drop. Uh, follow us on social media, RTB underscore official, and go to our website, reasons.org. And just remember that the more we discover about science, the more we have reasons to believe. Uh, God bless you. See you next time.